Woodside Community Church. Um, children, um, you are now dismissed um, to head off here to Sunday school. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Um, if you're not a child, take out your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, starting in verse 20 and 12, we're going to Mark 14, verse 12 through 31, which you can find on page 850 in the U Bible. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember we examined the great value of Jesus Christ, and we looked at how we generally respond to things that we highly value. We love those things. We pursue them. We spend on them. We think about them. We devote our lives to them. When we value something, it changes how we live. If you really value Christ, your life will reflect that. So Mary's extravagant act of worship in response to the infinite worth of the person and the work of Christ is a beautiful example of that. On the contrary, we looked at Judas's decision to betray Jesus with a relatively small amount of money, of 30 pieces of silver, showing us what he really valued. He valued money. Mary valued Christ. Well, Judas is now working with the religious authorities. He is now actively seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus, and that chance is now only hours away. Our passage this morning starts on about Thursday morning or afternoon, and it's going to cover until about midnight of that Thursday. But if you remember, I don't know if I mentioned this, they, they counted days differently um, back then. The Jewish calendar um, reckoned days differently than we do. You know, we have from morning to night, right, that's Monday. Next morning to night, that's, that's Tuesday. Well, they did the opposite, right? A day for them ran from sundown to sundown, right? So, as the sun set Thursday, um, and as they, the Jesus is gathering to celebrate his Passover meal with his disciples, it is now officially Friday in their calendar. It is now the day of Jesus' death. Judas' deed uh, will be done in a few short hours. And, uh, Jesus will be hung up naked on a cross in only about 12 hours. Time is short. But there is still much to occur. So like we mentioned last week, chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the whole book of Mark. And since we have a big chunk of it to read today, we don't have time for a lengthy introduction, but, but I cannot overemphasize how important the events of these verses are. There is a ton of significant symbolism in this passage, and then there is an absolutely seismic shift in redemptive history. This is the Passover. This is the most important celebration in Judaism. And Jesus is about to do something very radical with it. In Luke 22, 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He desperately wants to eat this meal with them. Why? Well, what is so important about the Passover, about this meal? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to cover three things. I want to explain what the Passover is and what it represents and Jesus' celebration of it. What we generally refer to as the Last Supper. Right? But then we're going to see how he transforms that supper into what will become the First Supper. And I want to close by looking at who are the, the invitees, the, the guests of that supper. So the Last Supper, which becomes the First Supper, and then we're going to look at the guests of the supper. So look down at your copy of God's Word, um, Mark 14, starting in verse 12. You can follow along as I read. This is God's Word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he eats, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for them. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let me pray um, before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for giving us um, your word. Um, Father, uh, I need you um, to work um, in this time. I need your spirit to, to take the truths of these pastors and apply them to my heart and the heart of everyone Father, show us the, the significance of the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that is re represented um, by this um, important supper. Father, speak to us in this time. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we start with the last. All right, it is, it is Thursday afternoon or morning, and, and his disciples ask him, hey, you know, what do you want us to do? Um, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover? You have to take the Passover meal within the walls of Jerusalem. And what Jesus says in response is very similar to what he said before the triumphal entry. And they are out in Bethany, remember that's where they're staying and traveling in. So he sends two of them into the city. He sends, Luke tells us, Peter and John to go into Jerusalem um, to meet a man carrying a water jug. So it seems that either Jesus has set this whole thing up beforehand or he's simply kind of employing his, his divine knowledge. Either way, kind of the point of these first few verses is to emphasize that, that Jesus is the one in control here. Right? Jesus is the one who is planning and orchestrating what is about to happen. Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is acting. He is controlling. What is happening is precisely what he desires to happen. In Acts 4, 27, the apostles pray, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Right? This whole process, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, this all went exactly according to God's plan. Right? At the darkest, most evil moment in history, the death of God's Son, God was still in control. Right? This moment is precisely what everything 
had been building toward. And this is actually the moment that Passover itself pointed to. So Peter and John, they, they go off, they, they find the man, they find the upper room, and they get everything ready and prepare for the Passover, the last supper. I'm sure you've, you've seen the picture of a bunch of white dudes sitting around the table and eating food, right? It looked, it looked nothing like that painting. It's a beautiful painting, but that's not what is going on here. But this is the last supper. This is the last supper that Jesus would eat. And it was a Passover meal. And that, in fact, itself is extremely significant. Why? What, what was the Passover? What was this celebration all about? Well, Passover was, and it sadly still is, the most important celebration or holiday in Judaism. Right? Its origins go back 3,500 years ago, about 1,500 years before Jesus, to the time of Moses and the Exodus. Right? The specific details of this are given to us in Exodus chapter 12. You went to the Sight and Sound Show a couple of weeks ago. You know, like, specifically the details of this story. But the Hebrews, right, we know the story, they have, they have grown up, they've grown up to a big and, and number of numerous um, people, but they are in bondage, right? They are in slavery down in Egypt. In Exodus 3, God shows up, He calls Moses and tells him to go and lead His people out of Egypt. Moses does not like this idea. He's not excited about this job, and he's not particularly qualified for it, but, but God seems uh, to enjoy working through weak and unimpressive people. I don't know what that says about me, but I'm okay with it, whatever. But, but God chooses Moses, and God goes, and he speaks. Uh, Moses goes, and he speaks in the name of God, and tells Pharaoh to, to set his people free. Pharaoh, of course, refuses. So God sends ten different plagues, ten different signs of his power and of his supremacy over all things, including Pharaoh. But our concern this morning is with only the tenth and the final plague. Right? God says that at midnight, he's going to go out and kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Right? That is the context in which Passover comes in. God gives his people a very specific but a very simple command. Right? This coming night, there is going to be judgment. There is going to be a payment for sin. Something is going to die. It can be either your firstborn, or it can be the substitute that God provides to die in the place of your firstborn. So he commands every family to, to take a lamb and to kill the lamb. Then they were to take some of the blood and paint the doorposts of uh, their door. Exodus 12, 12, God says, It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Passover. Right? It is literally the Lord passing over. It is Him sparing from judgment and justice those who are His. The Lamb dies in the place of the firstborn. So God can give mercy. He provides a way of salvation and then He brings His people out of the land. Right? That's what the word Exodus means. This is what Jesus and His disciples are gathering together to celebrate the night before His death. And again, I cannot overemphasize how important this celebration, this Passover, is to Judaism. Right? It's like their, it's their Easter. But they take it even more seriously than we take Easter. It is absolutely...
absolutely foundational to their identity. Right? It, is, it is their resurrection. And Jesus specifically picks this celebration. He picks this meal to help illustrate what he is about to do. At his last supper, he takes the Passover and he completely redefines it. And that's actually not completely accurate. He doesn't necessarily redefine it. He reveals its original and proper definition. He is about to show his disciples what the Passover was ultimately about all along as he transitions from the Last Supper then to the First Supper. Right? So Jesus and the Twelve arrive. Everything is prepared. They're reclining around the table and eating when they eat, kind of laying down. Uh, it's kind of to show that they're free, right? You know, they, they couldn't lay down um, at the Exodus. They had to be up, they had to be ready to go. Now they are free people, free to recline, and that's how they eat and celebrate this meal. Right? Now Mark actually gives us a very abbreviated account of what happens on this Thursday evening. But John gives us five entire chapters from just these few short hours. John 13 through 17 is all happening on this Thursday night at this meal. They're not just lounging around eating and talking about the game, right? Jesus knows that these are his last hours with his disciples, so he teaches them, right? John tells us that this is when Jesus washes their feet. This is when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is when he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He teaches them and promises them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is when he says, I am the vine. Who are the branches. This is what he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is what he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then he finishes the evening with this, this absolutely majestic high priestly prayer in John 17. All of that is just a taste of what John covers um, from that one Thursday evening. It was all critical, foundational stuff. Some of the stuff that we think of as the most important teachings of Jesus that comes on this night. Right? This is Jesus giving his departing words of wisdom. This is like uh, the review period before the final exam. This is his last lecture. These are the things that he found to be the most important that his disciples must know about before his death. But it's really interesting that Mark mentions none of that. Right? And we have zero time to spend covering it. Mark focuses on what he finds to be the most important and the most foundational. Jesus' transformation of the Last Supper into the First Supper. His institution of the First Lord's Supper. Which, according to God's providence, and thanks to the wonders of expositional preaching, we get to celebrate this morning as well. But first, I kind of want to run through the details of what this meal would have looked like 2,000 years ago. There was a very, very specific order to the meal. It was very deliberate and very structured. You were supposed to strictly follow the ritual, the, the prescribed pattern for the meal. And this meal was just dripping with symbolism. Right? Everything that happens in this meal happened for the purpose of teaching something about God and His salvation of His people. If you have any Jewish friends today, you may be familiar with the seriousness with which they still celebrate the Passover meal. Also referred to as the, the Seder meal. And that Hebrew word Seder just means order. Right? My, my barber, he's a Jewish friend. The last time I was there, we spent 30 minutes and he just kind of walked me through. 
through step by step what they do during this meal. It's fascinating. And it's actually still fairly similar to what they were doing 2,000 years ago. There were two main emphases of the meal, which again, this meal will take multiple hours. They don't end until about midnight, usually. And the two main emphases were remembering the past deliverance from bondage in Egypt and then anticipating the coming future redemption of the Messiah. That's what this meal is about, remembering and anticipating. And the meal itself was divided into four different parts. And each part was concluded with the drinking of a cup of wine. And these four cups of wine were very important. Now, I assume they were small cups of wine because that, that seems like a lot of wine. Maybe they were just tiny little amounts. But these, these four cups of wine represented um, the four promises that God made um, to His people in Exodus chapter 6. He promised rescue from Egypt. He promised freedom from slavery. He promised redemption by God's divine power. And He promised a renewed relationship with God. At each cup, the Father would stand up and explain the symbolism behind that cup. Right? At the beginning of the meal, he would stand up, he would pronounce a blessing, and then the child would ask every time, and they still do this today, I think it's usually the youngest child, after it's opened and been blessed, the youngest child says, why is this night different from other nights? And in response to that question, the Father would then just kind of launch into this kind of recounting of the story of Moses and the Exodus and God's salvation of His people. And so as the meal kind of progresses, the Father continually pronounces blessing over the foods that symbolize their captivity in Egypt. Everything symbolizes something. Unleavened bread, talking about kind of the, the how ready they had to be to go. They didn't have time to use yeast, bitter herbs, the representative of kind of the bitter um, nature of their slavery. Greens, stewed fruit, and roast lamb, representing the Passover lamb. And so throughout the meal, there's just constant teaching and teaching. This is what this means, and this is what this represents. And the whole point of the meal was to remember and then to teach. And so when we get to verse 22 in our passage, they would have already been hours into the ceremony. And it would have been after much of what um, Jesus teaches as, as recorded in John. And in verse 22, as they were reclining and already eating, Jesus does something very unexpected and very dramatic. Right? The fact that it says uh, that they were currently eating tells us that they were in the third phase of the meal. Right? They had just drank the second cup of wine, and they were, this was before they drank the third cup. And if Jesus was following the script, he would have taken the bread, he would have held it up, and he would have said, This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But that is not what he said. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and what he says absolutely changes everything. It says he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And that is so much bigger than we think. Right? We're, we're so used to hearing this, that it almost completely loses its force. I can't even begin to imagine what the disciples have, were thinking at this time. Right? Jesus has departed from the same script that has been reenacted for generation after generation. With what he says here, and with what follows, Jesus is taking the central ceremony in Judaism, and he is claiming it for himself. He is revealing the true meaning and purpose. The Passover is about me. Luke gives us more detail about what Jesus says. It says, this is my body which is given for you. Right? What was supposed to be bread that represented the 
people's affliction, he claims and says, this is the bread of my affliction for you. But he's not done yet. In verse 24, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus has now completely reinvested essential Jewish celebration with new meaning. Right? They are, there are so many things that I want to cover about this. But, but let me first start with what is not happening. For a very long period of time, millions upon millions of people have been deceived because of a basic lack of reading comprehension. This is my body. But our Catholic friends take this extremely literally. Right? They refer to this as transubstantiation. That's a, that's a million dollar word right there. If you can bust that out, I'll be impressed. Transubstantiation. Right? All that means, it's Latin, which means to change substance. Right? And they argue that when, you know, I'm going to stand here in a little bit, I'm going to hold up this bread, I'm going to read what Paul says, and they believe that when the priest holds up the bread and pronounces his blessing over it, that the bread and the wine magically kind of change into the actual body and blood of Jesus. And just to not only punch us quite honestly, it's absolutely crazy. Right? This is my body. It is pretty simple what that means. Right? Jesus frequently employs metaphors and symbolism to teach. And that is all that he is doing here. He also says that he is the vine. He says that he is the door. Right? Do we take him to mean that he literally becomes a vine or a door? Of course not. It's symbolism. Right? When in a regular Passover meal, right, what Jesus was supposed to say, what a father regularly said, they would hold up the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate, did the bread magically change into thousand-year-old moldy bread? Obviously not. Remember, the whole point of these meals was the symbolism. Right? They were they were to teach, and Jesus is playing off of that. It's pretty simple. This bread represents my body. It's not magic bread. It is just a piece of bread. The Latin. Right? The priest stands there. And he pronounces uh, this Latin phrase over the bread. And he says, Hoc es corpus meum. That's Latin for this is my body. Hoc es corpus meum. And that's actually where we get our phrase, hocus pocus. It's a corruption. It's an abbreviation of the phrase that they uttered at Mass. And we think that it was originally used as a mockery of the ridiculous idea that bread and wine magically become flesh and blood. It is hocus pocus. That's where the phrase comes from. The simplest explanation is often the best. This bread is a symbol of my body, which I'm going to give for you. Likewise, with the cup, it symbolizes his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then here, at this point, this blood of the covenant, this is the seismic shift in redemptive history. This is not just a meal. Right? This is... This is a covenant ratification ceremony, right? Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. And what's going on here is very similar to the ratification of the Mosaic covenant back in Exodus 24. Listen to this. This is just weird. I'm going to tell you about Exodus 24. Listen to what happens. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood and threw 
put on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now listen, that, all that does seem really strange and really gross to us. And it should. Have you ever wondered, like, we sang like five different songs that were all about blood. Uh, right? Does that ever kind of dawn on you that that seems a little weird? Like, why are these Christians all sitting around and then singing about blood? Right? It's kind of gross. My wife can't even see it without getting, you know, kind of like that. Right? Blood is, it's, it's icky. We don't like blood. Why? Why this emphasis on blood? Right? Listen, it's supposed to be alarming and shocking. It is supposed to convey to us the seriousness of sin and its deadly consequences. Right? This is the blood of the covenant. And a covenant is just an agreement. It is a contract. It is a solemn relationship of obligation. And the blood was the signing of, it was the ratifying of that contract. It is gory and it is repulsive to us that it was sprinkled on the people. But it was a very vivid way of saying, may my blood be spilled if I break the covenant. It was a graphic way to remind the people and to relay the seriousness of the covenant and to make it binding on them. From the very beginning, God had warned us that sin would bring consequences. As surely as you eat, you will die. And in, in Hebrew thought, the blood kind of symbolized, it represented the life. So to spill blood was to pour out life. And that's why the Old Testament is just so graphic sometimes. Because sin is so deadly. It's trying to just drill that into our heads. And right from the very beginning, God was pointing forward to what Jesus was doing in our passage and about to do on the cross. All the way back to Adam and Eve. Remember? They sin. God says there must be death. What happens? They don't die. God kills an animal in their place and he covers their sin with it. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is supposed to die, but God provides a substitute to die in Isaac's place. In fact, this is the whole point of the sacrificial system. Right? It is an innocent animal dying in the place of a guilty person. Listen, Hebrews tells us that it actually doesn't do anything. Right? The blood of animals doesn't forgive sins. It doesn't wash anything away. The whole point was to be just this constant graphic teaching tool and reminder to the people that this is how seriously I take your sin. And these are the consequences of it. Death. 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 The constant seeing of the blood. The constant death was supposed to drive the people back to God and His mercy and His forgiveness. Sin brings death. And we are all sinners. So either you are going to die or something is going to die in your place. A substitute. And that is what the gospel is. And the gospel is then all over the Old Testament. What Jesus is doing here is ratifying a new covenant. The covenant promised way back in Jeremiah 31 when God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 11 expands on this. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. This is a new and better covenant. And this is what Jesus brings. This is what he is ratifying here in this meal. We have proven time and time again our inability to hold up our end 
the arrangement. So what does God do? He comes in and upholds our end of the arrangement for us. He comes in and does something about it. He will give us new hearts. He will write His law on our hearts and enable us to follow and obey Him. But first, He has to take care of our sin problem. And that's what the bread and the cup represent. It's Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This cup that he is holding up, remember the four cups of the wine. This is the third cup. Right? This is the cup uh, where God promises to redeem his people. But it says he's going to redeem his people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So in their mind, they're, they're thinking great redemption for us, um, great judgment coming for other people. But what is Jesus doing when he is owning this and he is redefining this? He is saying, yes, great acts of judgment. That judgment is coming against me in your place. And that is the way that I am going to redeem you. God himself takes the judgment on Jesus Christ and then he redeems his people. That's the third cup. That's what it represents. And that is what Jesus is blessing and saying, this is the new covenant of my blood. His blood doesn't. He takes the judgment and he gives us the redemption. Right? That is the gospel. The gospel is God himself coming and sacrificing himself for us. Every other religion is going to tell you what you have to sacrifice for God to be saved. It is only in the gospel where God himself comes and sacrifices for you. It is fundamentally different than anything else out there. God has come to rescue his people. And because of their sin, he can only do that by dying for the Passover ultimately pointed forward to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 calls Christ our Passover lamb. We, we, we're not sure about this. We're not getting any details. But notice, in the whole account of these suppers and all four, then eating, the, eating a lamb is never mentioned. Not once. And that was the main highlight of the meal, but it's never reported in the Gospels. Why? Because Christ is the lamb. Right, that's the point. No more sacrifices. No more lambs. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice for sin. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His death gains our life. He is our lamb. He is our substitute. And that is what this supper represents. That is what we celebrate every time we gather together around the Lord's table. So that's the Last Supper, and we've seen the First Supper. I want to close briefly by looking at the guests that Jesus invited to His Supper. Think about it. Look back in verse um, 18. Look at verse 18. Early on in the meal, Jesus had told them that one of them is going to betray Him. One of the twelve. One of His closest friends. And they are all distraught. He's asking, is it I? Is it I, Jesus? Is it I? And he could have saved 11 of them a whole lot of stress and doubt if he had just told them who it was. But I think that he doesn't tell them on purpose so that they will all search and examine their own hearts and their own motives. Because just a few verses later, after he has washed their feet, after he has taught them and dined with them and prayed for them and given them this beautiful picture of his death in their place, jump ahead and look at verse 27. He drops a bombshell on them. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. One will betray, but all will fall away. 
But silly, stubborn Peter. He strikes again. Oh, I'm sorry, omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe. You are wrong on this one. Uh, these guys may abandon you. And it seems like he's kind of like that. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But not me. No, not I, Peter. I, I never would abandon you. Right? But very kind and very patient, Jesus informs Peter about what is going to happen. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. This is specifically what is going to happen. But Peter still insists emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And our passage ends by saying that every single one of them said the same thing as well. We will not. We will die with you, Jesus. One by one. Every one of them says it. They have all just had their feet washed by Jesus. They have all just been taught by Jesus. They have all dined with him and drink, drank of his cup. They all swear their allegiance to him, but they will all fall away. If you jump ahead and look ahead in the verse 8, we read, and they all left him and fled. These are the guests of the first Lord's Supper. And this supper is attended by a traitor, by liars, and by cowards. This is not a table of merit. This is not a table of worthiness. This is a table of grace. And I really want to belabor this point in light of how we, we so often misunderstand Paul's words that we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I've heard pastors before tragically um, teach that, oh, you know, you're struggling with, with some sin, or you've got some sin in your life, and oh, you, you should refrain from taking because you would be doing so in an unworthy manner. Guys, that's so unhelpful and backwards, right? This is a meal for sinners. Right? Just look at the guests of the first Lord's Supper. None of us are worthy of this. We are worthy of the Lord's Supper only when we recognize how unworthy we are. And the context of 1 Corinthians 11 explains to us what in an unworthy manner means. Right? Paul tells there were divisions in the church. It's like a competition at the meal. Right? Some were getting everything. They were feasting and getting drunk while others were getting absolutely nothing. There were divisions and things were not going right among the believers in the church. It is about interpersonal relationships and how we interact um, and serve each other. It's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Amen. Absolutely. Do that. Right? Our relationship with each other it is very important to God. If there is conflict, if there is unforgiveness, yes, please, um, take care of it. But Paul's warning here is not a command to clean up everything and have it all together or you cannot partake. If that were the case, none of us could partake. This is about grace. This is a meal for sinners in need. Now, listen, I don't say any of that to try and imply that we should take this lightly. Listen, we should not. Uh, this is a joyous but a solemn occasion. I, I take the Lord's Supper very seriously, and I hope that you will too. This is a picture of what Christ has done for us. It is our opportunity to remember, to thank Him, to confess our sin, and to throw ourselves um, upon His mercy. But I find great encouragement from the guests of the Lord's Supper. Liars, cowards, and sinners. Yet Christ still includes them. 
He still continues on his way to the cross to die for them. Though they were, as Paul said in Romans 5, um, weak, sinful, ungodly enemies. That is amazing grace. These are the people he is about to give up everything for. They do not deserve it, but he does it anyways. That is grace. It is undeserved, unearned favor from God. It is life given freely when we only deserve death. We are hours now before the end. He's on his way to the garden, and Judas is on his way to find him as well. But the good news is that the end is truly only the beginning. The most wicked and evil moment in all of history was going to be used by God and transformed into the most glorious and triumphant moment in all of history. This is specifically why Jesus has come. He has come for this moment to die willingly for us. It is the only way. Justice demands that sin be paid for. And payment is death. Right? And so it will be either your death or his. You can either pay for your sin yourself, if you insist, with an eternity of suffering in hell, or he can pay it all for you in an instant. And he said, it is finished. You don't have to do the work. You don't have to earn it. You can stop striving and trying to be good enough and prove yourself. All you have to do is rest in his finished work for you on the cross. He died so that you could live. And three days later, he came back to life, proving that he was who he said he was, and that he had finished what he said he was going to do. That is what this is about. That's all that's going on here. The bread, the body of Christ, the blood, the, the cup, the blood of Christ. It is, it is a symbol, it is a, a vivid and very clear reminder to us of what he has done uh, for us. So let me close us in a word of prayer as we transition into to celebrating this together. Father, we thank you that uh, from the very beginning, you were already making the way uh, for the salvation of sinners. Thank you that the Old Testament just contains so many illusions and, and witnesses to the gospel of what you are going to do in Jesus Christ, the substitution of the Lord. You were going to provide something to stand in our place and die in our place so that we could live. And we thank you for that something of Jesus Christ, fully God. And fully man. As man, he could 100% stand in our place and represent us. And as God, he was um, the only one that was that was valuable enough to, to satisfy um, what we all owe. So, Father, we thank you for rescuing us. We thank you that, that Christ came, he lived, and he died in our place. Father, this is a historical um, reality. And we pray that you would just confirm this in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would be bringing conviction, Father, be granting repentance and faith and just showing us our need for your grace and mercy. Father, bring us to a point of repentance. Father, I pray, bring us to this table with a desire to, to fellowship with you, to remember and to thank you for what you have done for us in spite of our sin. Father, I pray that we would um, reflect, we would take this um, not lightly, um, but very seriously, Father. We would thank you for what you have done that we can never do for ourselves.